the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. I try to get people to, even in a testimonial for me, give me a particular objection. So I might want a testimonial that says, I was really worried about the cost of this because I heard Dave was expensive, but here's all the reasons I happily paid more than I thought I was going to. Or, oh, I hear it took a long time to get an appointment with Dave and I really wanted this done, but they had this process so that even though I had to wait six weeks, I was all done in a month and a half. Run your law firm the right way. This is the Maximum Liar Podcast. Maximum Liar Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy? Hey, Tyson. How are you, my friend? It's good, good to talk to you. We haven't recorded in a while. I'm good. We, we recorded last week, I think. So I, I think you just miss me a lot. I think I think that's what it is. You just miss me and miss seeing my face. Oh, I said to my wife the other day, I mean, I've talked to you every week, at least once a week uh, for three years straight. Yeah, I've actually never thought about it that way. You're right. We And a lot of times it's it's daily. So um, I can't imagine you communicate with, with anyone more than me or your wife. So I think uh, I'm on your at least top three list of people you communicate. Nah, use your kids. I'm in your top 10. I'll say top 10 list. Well, I'm really excited about our guest today. So back in the old, old days, before I knew anything about marketing or running a law firm, I joined Ben Glass's group and um, I was moving into immigration only. And uh, at the time, there were some group leaders within uh, Ben's group. And one of them was a guy named Dave Fries. And Dave has a very, very successful um, estate planning practice in Pennsylvania. And he's been a good mentor for me and given me lots of good advice, some of which I'm going to bring up in a little bit during the show. But Dave is a great speaker, a great um, mentor. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of having Dave on the show. So Dave, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. That just put a lot of pressure on me, though. (laughs) Some some good ideas. So, Dave, talk a little bit about your your background and and kind of how you got to where you are today, and how uh, how you niched down to the practice area that you chose. It was a process of niching down and niching down further and further, and each time I did it, the margins went up, client satisfaction went up, the quality of my life went up. So, there's a there's a lesson in that. But um, 
I, I uh, went to Penn Law with the idea of becoming a trust and estates attorney. And one of the reasons for that was a very pragmatic one. I was living in Pennsylvania and going to law school in Pennsylvania and figured I'd settle in Pennsylvania. <clears throat> and at the time, Pennsylvania was demographically not quite there yet, but was becoming one of the most rapidly aging states in the country. And the area where I expected to practice, uh, which was a three or four county area, was made up of two or three of the wealthiest counties in the United States. So it's a good combination for a trusted estates lawyer, uh, which is lots of people getting older who had a lot of money. So there's another lesson, which is sometimes we don't pay enough attention to where we're living and setting up our practices and what that area of the country or the town or the city needs and make sure it's compatible with what we want to do. So I uh, also worked for the district attorney's office. And so when I came out, I had gone through Penn Law, studied everything I could about federal estate tax, real estate, estate administration, trust, promptly came out and got a fabulous job uh, litigating, which I enjoyed, but uh, was not really what I was trained to do or what I wanted to do. So after about a two or three year stint of doing some pretty uh, interesting litigation, I left a large city firm, moved out, went on my own, and then within a year or two of that, uh, joined a boutique, uh, smaller practice where I ran the trust of the state section, and that's where I've been ever since. And uh, I am 59 when we're talking here today, and um, I have about 12,000 trust of the state's files in the firm, which is, I don't know if that sounds like a lot or not a lot, but... For somebody my age in a, in a trust estates practice that since 1989 has only practiced trust and estates, uh, that's a good client base. And um, so a lot of my practice now, I mean, we're still constantly bringing in new clients, but a lot of my practice is focused on marketing to our existing clients who we need to come back in and update their documents and bring their kids in, run family meetings and things like that. Um, and that that's a pretty good overview. Um, I guess the weirdest part of my background is I was trained years ago as an interrogator, and I was always the good guy, so I was frequently requested back, which is rare. <laughs> uh, but it made me a really good marketer, I think, because I was always focused on what what why would this person talk to me, and what would make them want to share something with me, and when am I getting to the end of where they're open to and sharing with me? And, um, and if you bring that skill set of listening very attentively over to marketing in the trust of the state's world, or any world for that matter, you really know what it is that your clients are looking for and then how they describe it between or among themselves and the benefits they want to get from fixing the problem and the criteria they use to determine who can fix the problem for them. So learning to be uh, an interrogator, I think made me a pretty good marketer, but I'll leave that for Jim to say. He's a great marketer. And Dave, what, what do most lawyers misunderstand about marketing? What are the mistakes you see lawyers making? What sort of makes you cringe when you hear it or see it? 
Yeah, so a couple of things that make me cringe, and I have committed, so let me begin by saying I've committed every one of these sins that I'm about to describe on multiple occasions. Um, but typically, once I realize it, I am able to stop myself. So uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Red Queen hypothesis, but in, in evolutionary biology, this is the idea that if you're standing still, you're falling behind because the environment is always changing. And so organisms that you know, thrive in a given environment, unless they're adaptable um, by comparison to the other organisms around them, they're going to be falling further and further behind. So this is a mistake that a lot of law firms make is, oh, I cracked the code. I got a bunch of new clients in. Um, when, and, and then they stop. And they don't do marketing again until they're back in crisis mode. Or they're never testing or experimenting or optimizing so just because something works doesn't mean it can't be made to work better, and it certainly doesn't mean it's going to work uh, forever. So the the key for me is building an OODA loop kind of system uh, to go back in and see, okay, the action I just took, uh, how's it performing? And then let me tweak it a little bit to see, does that make it perform better or worse? And being able to monitor it so that if it does stop working, we know sooner rather than later. So that's a, a big mistake. Another big mistake we make is writing content and doing marketing to the extent we do it, even sporadically or erratically, that is not designed or optimized to bring in like who we really want to work with. I, I see firms all the time where they're doing stuff, it's working, it's attracting clients, but it's attracting clients to do the kind of work that the firm hates doing, or they're bad at doing, or the team hates doing, or it has smaller profit margins. That's the one that really kills me. I see firms paying good money, time, energy, resources to bring in work that's less remunerative than their best work. And that's just crazy. And we do that all the time. I, I was guilty of it for years. I used to say, wow, you know, people in their 40s, they have kids, they owe it as a responsibility, as adults and parents, they owe it to the kids to get this estate planning done. And we would spend all kinds of money and market, market, market to people in their 40s. And every now and then someone would come in, but they were always busy. They had trouble getting off work. They didn't have the time, money, and resources to put toward doing what they really should do. So they weren't great trust in the state's clients. So we eventually figured out, it took me a lot longer than it should have, that by about 52, Everybody has this experience. A neighbor has died and didn't have their stuff together. Uh, their mom or dad has passed away or suffered a illness or injury that put them in a nursing home. They know somebody who, you know, didn't get their stuff together in time. Also, they tend to be at the point in their careers where they have a little bit of flexibility so they can come during normal office hours and they can pay more. And because their kids are getting to the age where they might marry or they're having grandchildren and they're worried about their parents, there are all these other drivers of behavior that make what we do as lawyers have a way higher real and perceived value to them. So they want to pay you more. So interestingly, as we figured that out and we started focusing on marketing to just the right clients at just the right time about just the right kind of stuff, we found out that they were happy to pay us more and they reported way higher levels of satisfaction. They'd still come in, sometimes going like, oh, I just need a simple will. And they'd say, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to spend more than a thousand bucks on this. And then they would leave the office having spent two thousand or four thousand or five thousand. And 
be happier for it because we solved a problem for them that, um, you know, that they really felt, which is my, my daughter's marrying this guy. I like him, but what if they get divorced? I don't want my inheritance to go into his family. So figuring out where you're really going to put your effort rather than just doing it sporadically and haphazardly or worse yet, doing the things that you're going to do to attract less than the optimal client, very common problem. So David, it's really interesting that you brought all this up because we're in our office, we're, we're currently trying to come up with certain criteria that shows what type of clients are the most valuable clients to us. And mm -hmm. it's something that it's, and it really is, it's, it's, it can be, t it's difficult. It's not easy to do. No, it's an art and a science. You're right. Oh, yeah, it's it's really difficult because I mean, with a personal injury case, because we do personal injury, and you know, we we could have you know one person, their case could be worth a million dollars, another case, their their case could be worth you know five thousand dollars. Sometimes you don't know right away when they first call you, but we're trying to ask you know certain questions, and we're, we're looking through all our old cases and settlement values and socioeconomic status and a variety of things, and it and it really is it's it's challenging. It's a challenging process. Do you have any shortcuts? Do you have any hacks? Any way? Anything that you can think of that you use? Because a lot of it is just experience. I mean, that's a lot. A lot of it what it has to do with in our own data. Anything else you could we could look at to, to help ex expedite the process? Yeah. So you've hit on something big, which is just keeping track of it. Keeping track of a few more factors as they come in helps you to go back and look at that later. Um, I will say this, when I work with PI attorneys, that this, one of the single most important factors they look at, or that seems to be predictive, is type of case. So uh, a lot of trusted states lawyers, or a lot of, uh, of uh, personal injury lawyers, just say, well, you know, I do personal injury work. But the truth is, and you guys know this, <clears throat> that there's a breakdown of many, many, many different kinds of cases. So you can look at that is, do, what's our experience? Are we better at this with men and, or women? Uh, what's our experience? Are we better at this with bicycle accidents or motorcycle accidents? Are we better at this with you know, certain kinds of automobile accidents or accidents that occur in certain kinds of places? But one of the best predictors is, because there are firms, there are firms that are just better cut out for, um, Women really like them or men really like them. They make referrals of, of other kinds of people in their group who really like them. So occasionally you find out that something breaks down along an unexpected demographic or psychographic kind of line like that. So keeping track of it is still helpful. But most of the time what we find is that if you do an 80-20 analysis of your very best, maybe your top 40-50% of cases, you find that in that 20% that were the very, very best of the best – um, that they, they were easier to deal with. Um, they they were the margin on them was great. So Tyson, to your point, if you if you have a a case that's that, that where the fee is only ten grand, but it you could wrap these cases up all day long and settle them quickly and really efficiently, and paralegal could do eighty percent of the work. Um, that may be from a margin standpoint as good as a or better than a $50,000 or $200,000 fee case that takes all the wet blood and tears of everybody on the team forever and ever. So um, I, I think if, if you sort through the types of cases, generally speaking, you'll see that your team is cut out for, likes doing, is super skilled at, and you probably have started to build systems unknowingly around 
handling certain kinds of cases that just makes you better at them and improves the margin. So uh, I'll give you an example in the trust estates world, then we'll relate it back. But in my case, I used to write content for people who had children by prior marriages and they were in mixed families and, you know, they need trust estates planning help. But we found out that they would roll in feeling like this isn't hard. It's no harder than anybody that's been married once with one set of kids. And it is hard and it is more time consuming than that. And so the they were a harder sell. The margins were narrower. It was way more um, uh, time intensive for us. So it's not like we won't do it, but we we no longer spend our time, money and energy advertising that. So instead of a headline saying, you know, are you married or divorced with children and you want to protect them from their inheritance from marriage and divorce. We just say, you know, are you happily married or widowed and you want to do this? So it attracts that type of case that we're better at doing that has higher margins. Translate that over into the the PI world. Um, A lot of times we've seen where firms are really great, have set up a process for, and with a little refinement, it could be a killer process for um, bike accidents. And so then they, they get good at getting them because they know what publications to go to. They know where the advertising dollar is likely to produce a client that's, or they may find that a certain size case that were way better generally at cases that uh, involve this kind of an accident. Like, so so a, a truck hitting a car, I don't know if you guys have ever handled those, but when I come as an outsider and look through the inventory of some PI practices, I consistently see that these are, bigger cases that generally speaking the insurance is in place and they resolve for more and they resolve for more quicker than some of the other cases do so when i see those criteria i might say to somebody show me your system for how you get these and how you handle it and if they've done more than a few it might just be some tweaking to to reproduce that result over and over and over again it may just be doing an faq uh, are, were you in a car accident where you're hit by a truck? If so, here are the 10 most frequently asked questions and the 10 questions that even our smartest and savviest clients don't know to ask. So now you have on your website 20 questions, FAQs about truck car crashes, and uh, should ask questions that people didn't need to know to, to ask. That could be very powerful at just producing more of those. And once you get a couple of those, then you know what happens is – Somebody who was in a truck car accident, you guys represented them, you got them a fantastic result. The next time they hear somebody, they say, oh, I was hit by a truck, I used these guys, they did a phenomenal job for me. So it becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that you get more of those referrals. But I like, the, I guess the quickest hack and the quickest place to start is type of case with an overlay of um Size of size and speed of recovery. Those three factors, I think, if you look at those, they're going to be very telling. I love it. Good stuff. Dave, you mentioned creating content, and that's one of the things that you are extremely good at. I know that you've studied the art of copywriting, and we're not talking about copywriting a product. We're talking about copy, like writing copy. Can you mm-hmm. talk to us a little bit about how you've developed that skill? Because you're really good at it. Sure, and thanks. Um, the uh, so I, so again, the skills that I was describing earlier that I cultivated in one part of my life translate really well to this. Most uh, realtors, for example, 
when they're trying to sell your house, they just put up a description. So when I recently sold a house of mine, I sold it in four days. I said to the realtor, who writes the copy that people see? And they say, oh, we do. So I said, great, send me three from recent listings so I could take a look at them. And the headlines on them were things like, well-maintained house on Primrose Lane. Well, I mean, I think most house buyers take it for granted that mm -hmm. the house will be well-maintained. I mean, that's kind of a, I hope it is, presupposition. So, and then when you read through, they have, you know, how many bedrooms and bathrooms and things. So, and this is a process I take to bring to the law all the time. I said, hmm, well, my house is in this price range and it's in this area of the country. So I just did some research. Maybe it took me an hour. And I researched article after article after article about what buyers of homes in this price range in this section of the country are looking for. So, for example, if you were buying a house in um, Arizona, you might want very different features than in Pennsylvania where it's cold in the wintertime. But at any rate, I found pretty consistently 10 to 14 things mentioned. And I had 12 of the 14. So I then wrote a headline that said, you know, it's frustrating, isn't it, trying to find all the things you want in one home? And then I just went through all of the, and I said, but this one might be the place. You should take a look at it. And I just went through and wrote copy about each of these things that I already know that the buyer who's going to buy my home is super interested in. And when you stack my copy side by side with this other copy that people who are in that profession wrote, it was no competition. And everybody that looked at that house, there were 32 people looked at the house in the four days it was on the market. Everybody that spoke to the realtor said, I just, I, that, I had to come see this place once I read that, which is exactly the point of that article. It said, if you're looking for all of these things in one place, you have to come see this place. What's the harm? Just come see it. So Here's the key that lawyers should take away from that. We do all this research for, uh, for a living in virtually every practice area that we're in. And, but when it comes to writing content or shooting video, we, we, we get excited by things that excite lawyers and we talk about them the way lawyers talk about them instead of saying, what is worrisome, exciting to, um, you know, weighing upon the not just any of your clients, but the best clients that I've really enjoyed doing work for who have either had either this kind of accident or this kind of claim. And that's what I do really well is I and I, I do it on intake and exit, too. So as clients come in, we ask them, oh, what brought you here? And then when they leave, we say, what was it that you found most interesting and helpful to you? And those answers are very different, by the way. When they come in the door, they say to us, oh, I'm worried about saving probate fees, and I'm worried about um, avoiding probate, and I'm worried about federal estate taxes. And then when they leave, they say things like, oh, I had no idea I could protect my son and daughter from losing their wealth uh, that they inherit from me in a divorce or a lawsuit. And my son's an OBG land doc, or my daughter's already been divorced twice. Or So we we know, okay. Where are they when they're shopping for a lawyer? And what are the things that we can educate them to be more worried about that we're really good at? So having clarity about who your best clients are and what their worries are and what they're looking for out of this, 
like whenever I write a piece of, of copy of Jim, I think you could probably back from back of the day verify this is true. When I write something, it's always designed to address particular objections too. I even do this Tyson, to your point about hacks. I I try to get people to even in a testimonial for me, give me a particular objection. So I might want a testimonial that says, I was really worried about the cost of this because I heard Dave was expensive, but here's all the reasons I happily paid more than I thought I was going to. Or, oh, I hear it took a long time to get an appointment with Dave and I really wanted this done, but they had this process so that even though I had to wait six weeks, I was all done in a month and a half. And and so all of these things that are objections to what I do or how I do it, I address them in the copy. I address them in content. I have a video that says, why would you wait such a long time to see me when you go see another lawyer like the next day? So all of those things that you know are or suspect are worrying clients or all of those things that they want, being able to deal with those in copy um, is is vital because they're all, there's these universal ones like, will it work? Will it work for me? It's too expensive. These are universal things that people fall back on to try to, their brains try to stop them from taking action by making them afraid of these things. And you just always have to deal with those. And then there are some that are going to be specific to the kind of clients that you get. And the only way you figure those out is by, by being a meticulous researcher about it. Dave, selfishly, I want to I want to be able to talk to you all freaking day. I think that I could run this freaking episode until tomorrow because you've got so much great information. A question I've got for you is getting those testimonials. What can you talk a little bit more about your process of getting those testimonials and getting to those objections? Because that's a big struggle that people talk about all the time is just getting Google reviews by themselves, but getting actual testimonials, whether it be video or otherwise, can be tough. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it can be. And I'm not the greatest person in the world at this, meaning I have never made it my mission to get the maximum number of reviews or testimonials. I've always kind of made it my mission to get the best ones that I could. Uh, now, I've had the luxury of being able to do that because I was very early to the game with video. And so we have these videos that in Pennsylvania, Google just knows are loved and trusted by people who ask certain kinds of questions. So they show them all the time. So in a, in a different environment, like if I was building the firm now, I wouldn't have the luxury of being able to pay less attention to getting five-star reviews and testimonials. But um, I, I focus, Tyson, on, on a couple of things. One is getting them offline because I, if, if a client says something to me as a quote, like in a conference or on the way out the door, um, and then we'll, I'll talk to you about some of the automation and system, systemization of this too. But somebody says to me, I say, oh, that is something, like if they say, oh, I was really worried about how long this is going to take. I'm so glad that even though I waited six weeks, they made my next appointment. I was all done. Thank you so much. So I say, oh, that is something that people worry about. Do you mind if we quote you on that? Would you give me that testimonial? And I, I will offer it to them. I'll say, I'm going to write it up, the quote, to the best I can remember it, and shoot it to you by email. If it's not right, you just adapt it. But if you could post that for me, that would be great. And would, if, if it's okay, would you just shoot back an email that says, uh, yeah, you, uh, you'll allow me to use this. So a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work for the client 
And it's not scalable because I'm having this individual conversation with them. But I'm here to tell all your lawyers it's okay to do things that really, really work but aren't scalable because everybody reads all this stuff. Everybody, Everything has to be in a system. Everything has to be scalable. And while systems are better than no systems, sometimes things that don't scale are so effective that they're worth doing. And so uh, I, I do, do this sort of work-intensive process, but it allows me to kind of pick and choose which testimonials. Now, having said that, we also have a process. So when the client is done, we ask them uh, a series of questions, which could be summarized in the following, how did we do? And we get a lot of answers that, to that kind of question or series of questions that we, where we could stop them and say, oh, that is something that people worry about. You know, people will talk about price. They'll talk about the weight. They'll talk about uh, how complex it was. And then they'll say, this is complex. It's complicated. But Dave or Doug or Andrew made it super understandable to me. And they clearly paid attention. They gave me a will that said exactly what I wanted to. So that out the door process as you're wrapping up is awesome. But we also then send them an email as a follow-up that says, how do we do? And it's just got a smiley face, a neutral face, and an angry face. And just click one of them. If they click the happy face, it's going to send them Avo links or Google links. And there's a process where we alternate those to give us reviews. If they give us a neutral face, nothing happens. Uh, we just... I think we send the thing back that says, thanks for letting us know. If there's ever anything we could do to make it better, let us know. If they send us an angry face, that's going to trigger, or any one of my lawyers, that's going to trigger an email to me. So there's going to be a personal outreach to them. And sometimes people just say, oh, I, I, you know, we have a lot of older clients. They just say, oh, I didn't, I was trying to give you the happy face. Um, but but uh, even on the very few occasions where somebody has rated us with this lower one, when we get to them, they go, wow, thank you for reaching out. I never heard, thought I'd hear anything again. And they have actually become advocates. That's a, that is something that really does happen. It's not just apocryphal. So there, we have less control, but we are driving a little bit of um, a volume with that. And it, it has worked out pretty well. They tend not to be as great as if we write down what they said and send it to them where they could kind of approve it. And we're not toying with their quotes. We're trying to make the quote as accurate as possible, but we're being very selective about who we send those to because, you know, somebody just says something that's outstanding and we know we want to use it. Does that taste that? Did that get to the heart of what you were asking? You nailed it. It was perfect. Thank you very much. That's great advice, Dave. And speaking of great advice, I want to harken back to something you said to me a long time ago when I told you that I was niching down just to immigration. And you mm-hmm. said, uh, we were talking about marketing. And you said, Jim, be careful of the marketing because your systems are going to get stretched to the max when the marketing kicks in. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought about it. And now that I'm seeing it, I mean, we're we're going to process probably 40% more cases in 2019 than we did in 2018. So talk to our listeners about why you gave me that advice. Sure. So I could tell just from from two things that Jim was saying to me, and Jim, it's funny, I remember the very call or calls that you're talking about here, but I could tell from, from two things that were going on in those calls that he was going to be successful. One is he really had clarity about the niching down. And, and as I said earlier on the call, every time I did that, it was financially uh, rewarding and sort of spiritually rewarding too, in that I was doing more of what I was really good at doing, and I felt like I was having more of an impact. 
And so when that happens to a lawyer, they, then they more happily put their, throw their life into it and put their work behind it. And then the other thing was, even though he was in the infancy of thinking out how to do this marketing, he was, go, he was thinking about all the right things. You know, what do these clients need? What are they worried about? How would they pay for this? How can I charge more but get more satisfaction? He was just asking himself all the right questions. So I'd had this happen several times in the course of my career as I would sort of adjust course to niche further down where I would immediately outgrow a CRM that I had put in place or we had trained paralegals and secretaries to answer the phone one way and now because of call volume they had to answer the phone and screen a different way. And so what happens is when you when you when your marketing is successful it's just an upward virtuous spiral because more people come in and as long as they have a great experience they'll tell more people because a really good marketing campaign will also say what do I do next? When they're going out the door, what do I say to them? What do I give them? What referral tools do I give them? Uh, why do I give them reasons why they would share those referral tools with somebody? And Jim was already thinking about those things as a system. The, the problem is that uh, if you're not careful, you you get more people than you can handle with your existing staff and your existing systems. And then more than one person has an unpleasant experience. And then it starts to slow that cycle down because instead of going out and sending you two or three more like them, they go out and complain to a couple of people. So um, it's just a natural thing. And so what I, the way that I guess ultimately I mitigated that problem as much as I could is whenever I was hiring somebody new, I'd try to hire at a level higher than I normally would have. I would pay them a little bit more because I knew that if we did a good job of marketing, even that a new person had come in, we'd fill them up faster. If I was buying a CRM, I would say, okay, what are the features I would need two years from now, four years from now, five years from now? Can this thing still handle it? What would the cost of it be? I started asking uh, really different questions than I was answering before because I would outgrow personnel, I would outgrow systems, I would outgrow software so fast when I would crack the marketing code. Because here's the other thing about that red queen hypothesis again. If you if you narrow down to your 20%, you know, your 80-20, your top 20% of your clients who produce these really higher margin cases and who have high levels of satisfaction and are easy to work with and are asking you to do work you like. Like if you draw the Venn diagram and say you know, how many cases fall into that category? There aren't that many of them. And then when you start to write content or do advertising or ask for referrals only from them, then you get more of those, right? But the next year, your 80-20 looks even different because of those new clients that you brought in, there's a subset of them that are better than the others. So thinking further out both in the marketing, like I have an email sequence now when somebody comes in as a prospect uh, that takes them for a couple of years. If they convert, then I have a six or seven year email sequence that just keeps them in the ballpark, keeps them in a relationship with us, periodically triggers them to make referral. We also send out a, a mailed newsletter. These are the people that were our clients, but statistically aren't likely to ever come back. Like a lot of people never redo their will. Um, of the people that redo their wills, it's sort of seven to 10 years on average. We have that down with our clients in the last 10 years. The clients have come in are down to about a four-year period on average where they come back in. 
So just, Jim, just thinking a little bit further out about the marketing and the systems really helps because they'll, if you do it right, they'll be under strain. That's awesome. Yep. And right, sometimes gentlemen. you think of that stress, like the systems get strained, you go like, oh, this is stressful and it's bad. But uh, I, I think what I was preparing you for is a different mindset on that. When that started to happen, you're, you're not going to go, oh, this is bad. You're going to say, right. oh, this is good. Right. That's exactly what he told me was going to happen. All right, gentlemen, I hate to do this because I want to keep this thing going, but we, we do want to be respectful of your time, Dave. So I'm going to begin to wrap things up. Uh, before I do, I want to remind everyone, go to the Facebook group, get engaged there. There's a ton of activity going on every single day. I can't stress that enough, how much people are sharing awesome ideas. Um, and then also, if you don't mind taking a couple minutes, going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and giving us a five-star review, it definitely means a lot. Jimmy, what's your hack of the week? So I want to follow up on one of the things that Dave said, and it reminded me of, uh, I, as I mentioned in last week's episode, I just finished reading Rocket Fuel by the Traction People, and there's a story in there about Henry Ford, and that he came, he, he had a night shift and a day shift, and he came in one day, and he asked the day shift how many widgets they had produced, maybe cars or something, and they said six. So he got a piece of chalk, and he wrote in chalk on the ground the number six. And then the night shift came in and they said, hey, what's that number? And he said, that's how many widgets the factory got out during the day shift. So when he came back the next morning, there was a seven where the six had been. And that was that was the number that the night shift had done. Well, then he came back later and the day shift had written 10. And so I'm bringing this up just to encourage people, just like Dave said, to even if you don't know what you're going to do with it, think about the data that you could be tracking now because just the act of tracking the data will show you what you need to do next with that data and it will also create competition or help you improve things or give you targets for all for more for leading indicators rather than lagging indicators just looking at your P&L at the end of the month that's just the lagging indicator but if you're looking at the things that you can control like how many widgets you produce in a given shift it's going to put you a lot better off down the road Nice work, Jimmy. Good stuff. Uh, all right, Dave. So I think Jim mentioned to you, we ask our guests to give a tip or hack of the week. Do you have a tip or hack for us? So I'll give you a quick one uh, uh, that everybody will moan and go like, oh, yeah, thanks. But then I'll give you a variation on it that matters. So uh, have an editorial calendar because lawyers always tell me I'm too busy to produce content and I'm just going to buy it. But anything you buy will just be a pale reflection of what you would write yourself, especially if you're really writing for your client and really writing in the way that they talk about it. So if you're not getting any content out now, uh, go onto your calendar and block the time to write one piece of content for a blog a month or two a month. Make it something that's doable and achievable. But here's the variation on this that makes a difference. Also block an extra half hour in there to look back on the week before and say, okay, how's that doing? What are my Google Analytics on that? Who's looking at that thing? How many people? Because what's going to happen is two out of every 10 pieces of content you produce are going to way outperform the others. And it's going to give you an idea of who's looking at that and what you're getting. Another thing is make sure on intake that you're asking people, oh, how did you get to know us? Were you referred by whoever? Or did you see an article that we wrote or a video that we produced? And people will start to tell you. 
And one of the things you'll find is some of the stuff that you think was fantastic that you wrote and gets a lot of traffic produces horrible, horrible people as clients. And another stuff that's maybe doing great or maybe doing just okay produces magnificent clients that are really awesome to work with. And you never know unless you both carve out the time to create the content and to follow up each and every month on what's that content that I put out in the past doing that will make a gigantic difference to your life. Great stuff. Hey, Dave, before I get to my tip of the week, can you let people know how they can get a, get in touch with you? Sure. A terrible way to get in touch with me would be to send me an email at dfreeze, F-R-E-E-S, at four letters, uniform, tango, bravo, foxtrot, utbf.com. So that's a terrible way to get in touch with me. A great way to do that is to send me an email there and copy Lisa Snyder, who is L. Snyder. S-N-Y-D-E-R at utbf.com because at least I'll make sure I see it. And then you can always call at 610-933-8069. And if you want to see stuff that I write of legal stuff, you could go to paestateplanners.com. Great stuff. It sounds like you love email just as much as I do. So I think that was, say, it, was it, very smart of you. <laughs> I'm, with, I'm with you. All right. So my tip of the week actually is a little more personal, but I think that our personal lives have a gigantic effect on our business lives. So mine is an app, no shocker there. And it is a the S'mores Up app. So S-M-O-R-E-S Up. So S'mores Up app. And what it does is it allows you to um, coordinate your calendars with your significant other. You can uh, assign chores to all of your kids. You can give them rewards, so you can set up an allowance, things like that. It is really cool. Um, so, like for example, we put a vacation on our calendar recently. We set up all of the chores for our kids, and they can earn points so that they can then uh, trade those in for you know, toys, whatever we, we set up for them. So it's actually a really cool app. We spent over the week, spent the weekend setting up a few things. It's free. It's really cool, and so it, it kind of puts all of those things under one app, so you don't have to go from from thing to thing to thing. And that way you can you can coordinate your calendars with your spouse. So it's, it really is nice. So S'mores Up app is my tip of the week. Dave, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. Um, we're going to connect offline at some point so we can meet up because you, you, you're just great. So thank you so much. Thank you thanks. guys for having me. Thanks, Jeff. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your hosts and to access more content, Go to MaximumLawyer.com Have a great week and catch you next time.